You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 030, where I continue my conversation with Arif Karim, founder and CEO of Quality Capital Management. This episode is sponsored by Swiss Financial Services. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. And speaking about the, the sort of the, the portfolio and the universe of markets, and you mentioned we just discussed commodities. Uh, I noticed that you offer, as far as I'm aware, uh, the same strategy, but with or without commodities. Yes. Um, yes. And I think that's a big debate, actually, because it's it's clear that people in the last few years who have not had a big allocation to commodities probably did better from a performance point of view uh, in in the last couple of years. I mean, what do you think is what is right or, or wrong, so to speak, in terms of should you have the commodities or should you not have the commodities? How do you view that? I think it all depends on your perspective. Like, uh, you know, our um, uh, AFP, as we call it, the Alpha Financials Portfolio, that came about through a specific request from an, uh, from a client of ours, an existing client who already invested in the GDP. Mm. Uh, it was actually a fund of funds, and they had, in turn, uh, uh, I think, a pension um, uh, fund investor who specifically um, asked if we uh, had a pure financials portfolio. So um, the request we got from our investor was that, look, you know, uh, uh, obviously they were quite happy with our um, strategy and and so asked us if we could run some simulations based exactly on the same approach, uh, which would not change anyhow for another portfolio. We always tend to use the same approach. And we just took essentially commodities out. Uh, The interesting thing is that you know, people say, oh, so is this a carve-out? And I say, no, it's not a carve-out. In portfolio terms, in terms of labeling, yes, it looks like a carve-out. Sure. But in terms of its behavior, because of the way we trade, um, the the relative value type of an approach essentially results in portfolios that can be quite different sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and they both, they both perform. Now, clearly... Those who believe um, in commodities as an asset class, as a non-correlated asset class to um, to the other two major ones, equity and fixed income, um, for them, commodities uh, to be included in the portfolio, so long as they don't have any policy constraints within them, that you know that would be very attractive. And in fact, when you look at vol overall, yes, the vol in the portfolio or with commodities is uh, a little bit more you know attractive you mm. know, compared to the vol in the pure financials one uh, having said that you know in the financials one we have currencies now we look at currencies in a in a slightly different way in that through currencies in some ways we are in engaging uh, into emerging market equities Okay. Okay. It's a proxy, if you like. We're also participating in carry trades to a certain extent, Mm -hmm. you know, with interest rate differentials, you know, and also into commodities, you Mm -hmm. know, because there are some commodity currencies, whether we're talking about Scandi, you know, the the, Aussie and and South Africa, and then, yeah, and so on and so forth. So, in some ways, in the AFP, the currencies play quite a nice, you know, complementary role because you have equities and fixed income, which are your kind of traditional assets, and currencies play the buffer role in between. It softens it sometimes through an interest rate play, mm-hmm. uh, and other times it'll actually be opportunistic and looking for essentially, you know, uh, pickup in risk premium in the emerging markets or whatever, you know. So um, it, it plays a quite a and that's the reason the volatility in that portfolio is still very uh, and the return to all basically risk reward is actually quite uh, quite attractive in, mm. in the AFP and we find that you know institutions um, a number of them 
generally uh, prefer, like, okay, we don't understand commodities, and you want to own commodities only as a passive asset class almost, like, you know, mm. you just have a portfolio and almost like index link it or whatever. Right. And, uh, and, and then for the uh, active part, they prefer just things that they understand better, which is equities and fixed income, and the relationships are much more observable and, and, and predictable, to, you know, in their minds. You sure. know. Is it a um, <laughs> slightly different question? Is it a difficult strategy to explain rather than when you were, uh, say, a, a, a medium to long-term trend follower? Yeah. <laughs> well, it isn't, it isn't. You know, it's like with anything, um, the more you kind of chunk down if you like and in other words you, the more you go into layers into deeper then it becomes complicated if you keep it at a very high level and mm. say look you know people you know uh, make money by calling directions on the markets mm. and others do it by just changing the level of conviction okay mm. and in our case what we have is a mechanism which we believe quite efficiently tries to change those levels or to try and be in step In, with the markets in terms of changing the level of conviction so that the portfolio is always looked at as a whole, you know, and it is a holistic approach um, and the system essentially takes care of it in a totally unemotional, you know, without any cognitive biases and so on and so forth and it is not a heuristic approach. It is because there is alpha there in terms of the dynamics of this, you know, changing the weights mm. and that is how we are kind of trying to essentially... Uh, generate the generate the returns ours is not a complicated thing what makes it i guess a little more difficult to explain is simply a function of the fact of the ip right okay because we don't want to <laughs> talk openly about what what we how we're doing it right you know? so therefore it sounds like it's it's more complicated uh, but i i do think that what uh, the way we are running it is um, quite different mm -hmm. it, is, it is quite unique you know because um, in the industry uh, certainly over the years that I've kind of uh, been involved on the other side sure. and even just following it from now is on, on this side I don't think I've come across I wouldn't say any but maybe there are but I'm saying I certainly haven't come across any myself sure. you know? why, why is volatility in your view Why is that a good, and I use the word indicator, even though you, in a sense, don't really use indicator, but why is that an important source of information in making investment decisions, do you think? Okay, so uh, again, you know, it's, it's a part of your own uh, philosophy. It all comes down to um, your, in, in, in some ways, the way, it, what makes you feel comfortable, okay? Mm. So some people tend to play with prices because they, it's much more visible. You know, mm. alternative is less visible, right? But when you look at the distribution of, uh, of returns, and, and our strategy is long vol, okay? Mm. So we are looking for divergence as opposed to convergence, mm. right? Yeah. And so our skew that we get, you know, in the distribution returns, the big, fat, lumpy returns that you get You know, so long as you don't try and truncate those or uh, get in too early and take profits and so on and so forth, if mm. you let it go. I mean, you look at the traditional, you know, long-term trend follower, all the skews to come mm. from those, they would make money, uh, you know, maybe 30% of the time, 40% of the time, if you looked at the individual trades, sure. okay, sure. in the markets. But you were relying on those fat tails, essentially, yeah. right? Yeah. And what they would do is essentially by having even the minimal basic level of risk management whether it's through stops etc you're kind of truncating the left side to a certain extent or mm. trying to manage it so effectively you're letting your um, the the positive skew side work in, uh, its own way through riding the the, the trade you know mm. and in some ways our strategy is still follows that principle because we're long vol and we don't want to necessarily curb that uh, upside potential too much and the It's very easy to control drawdowns, you know. It's, you just do it by having a lot of indicators and a lot of things to just um, essentially try and protect you from the, from the left side of the distribution. But what you end up with is you give up quite a lot. The mm. cost of trying to manage short-term noise is, you know, over a period, it's quite huge. Right. And it comes about through an opportunity cost, okay? 
it's not visible, but it's an opportunity cost because what you're giving up is the potential to for that big trade, the big trend trade, if you like, if you're sure. a trend follower, sure. you know, to give up. So we've tried to find a balance. And so when you look at the distribution returns for long vol, you've got a very positive skew. And you look at the guys who are playing convergence at short vol, mm -hmm. and they have a negative skew. So sure. in other words, they're going to pick up those pennies on a regular basis, but once in a while, they've got risk of ruin. They've got a blowout risk, yeah. right? And that's an iceberg risk that looms underneath. So philosophically, at KCM, I and we as a team, we feel more comfortable with the long vol approach. I feel we can sleep better. Mm. And knowing that, look, this strategy will correct itself, okay? Mm. Now, is it uh, therefore loss-proof? Absolutely not. So mm. where do the losses come from? It comes from the lags, essentially, right? Mm. Because it takes sometimes a while for you to, ad to adjust your positions, right? Mm. Because the system, as dynamic as even ours is, it still takes a little while, right? Because you're not doing it. The more high frequency you go, the more you want to adjust it. Again, you're kind of going to uh, introduce a lot of noise. Mm. So there is a balance that you have to reach. And that balance is entirely up to the manager mm. because you have to determine what you feel comfortable with. If you're so um, you know, worried about your not being able to take some volatility, then you have to have this tighter, shorter-term systems um, that adjust much more quickly. But it's guaranteed that you're going to give up some of the the potential upside. You know, is it fair to say that a low volatility environment actually creates more volatility in your return, and and in a sense, the low vol volatility—I call it low volatility environment—that we've seen the last few years. But it could be just you know, uh, price range compression. I'm not entirely sure whether volatility necessarily, except for maybe equities and some currencies, maybe where it's gone down for sure. But but how does that affect you when, when we have authorities that come in and they really try and manage things? And have you in your research seen periods that look somewhat similar uh, to, to what we've been experiencing the last uh, couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I think the low vol environment definitely causes errors, right? Because mm. it just gives you false signals, right? Mm. Uh, and even in our methodology where you're not taking binary signals, you're kind of essentially adjusting weights, but still you're building up weight. And no sooner have you start to build up weight, again, the market comes down. So again, sure. it takes uh, it takes the weight off. Now, we believe that in our current enhanced uh, approach that we uh, that we adopted in September last uh, year and we don't change our models much you know sure. uh, believing in the principles of like avoiding style drift and so on and so forth mm. but even in our approach I mean so we we've had you know difficulties okay um, so the issue is this that the, the nature of the when you say that does, do you find the volatility increases you know with low vol environment mm. it's not so much the vol increases right Vol actually, uh, it, it actually reduces, however, it's more attritive, okay? So in other words, you're getting negative, negative, negative months, you know, for, for an extended period of time. Mm. And that is what we've tried to address, uh, you know, over the last research kind of enhancement that we've made uh, by essentially trying to avoid so much of this and making the system more... Uh, you're more efficient in terms of not willing to trade these markets where there's a, a lot of these whipsaw stuff going on, uh, losing markets and essentially push it out a lot more to things like even fixed income if need be, mm. you know, mm. where you're not likely to see this kind of, um, you know, wall. Whereas like commodities is a classic example of that, right? I mean, what cost most of the CTAs in the last three years, as we all know, uh, has been commodities. So you've had a compression of volatility through mm. the artificial sort of, uh, you know, liquidity that was introduced by the uh, Fed and the central banks generally. Uh, so you had in a compression uh, mode in terms of vol, uh, correlations, etc., all were sort of, you know, uh, breaking down. So you had spurious sort of correlations, that, you know, moves that uh, just were um, affecting, giving wrong signals in a mm. way. And so, uh, uh, short of you sort of saying, okay, well, why not just 
stop trading commodities and let's go and trade other stuff. You can't do that. You're mm job as a diversified portfolio manager is to keep your oars in the water with all and that's what you get paid for mm -hmm. and um, and you know it has its costs unfortunately but I look at this in the biggest scheme of things as a cycle okay now could this could we have done better sure we could have done better and that's what we have done and sometimes you know, we say we our approach is generally not reactive in terms of making any research changes, but some things are a bit of an eye opener. And you know, I have to say that you know what we've seen, uh, the kind of environment we've seen over the last uh, few years uh, since the crisis, has been extraordinary. It's been unusual. This low interest rate environment, a lot of uncertainty going on, and yet at the same time you have one asset class equities, you know, from 2009, March low, has been just going straight line up, sure. you know. Um, and that's because functional liquidity, there's so much liquidity, you know, mm -hmm. in, in the system. So how do you take an environment like that and, and find inspiration for new ideas? Now, we know that, uh, as, as you've said uh, a, a couple of times, I mean, in, in one sense, investors, they want you as a manager to innovate but they don't want you to change we don't want style drift and so on and so forth and that's yeah. obviously a, a balance in itself but when you see an environment like this what do you see that you think you know this is something that i could use constructively to improve my my model so to speak what are the areas you're looking yeah. for so in in our case uh, because it's not so much of an uh, uh multi-model approach it's mm. pretty much one model and um, and the inputs and variables are very few in it and so consequently uh, we look at it like has anything changed so much that therefore the system in itself the model in itself mm. is uh, not behaving not doing the right sort of thing I mean that would be the most worrying thing is that if it was doing the wrong sort of thing, but it mm. wasn't, you know, it was just the lags. And, and you could see that the attrition that was caused, particularly in commodities, was uh, was the major source of, you know, uh, losses. Sure. And, uh, and, and so what we did is we said, okay, let's go back. You know, we took a deep dive into the volatility world and sort of like actually looked at the vol in commodities and and then compared it to the uh, to the other assets, and that is what kind of brought up this point of like, in which we subsequently sort of went on to uh, to make that adjustment in the portfolio. That it was really to do with essentially that the sensitivity of our model to the volatility in commodities, given that the rest of the assets were not as volatile because of the equities I mentioned were going straight line up, fixed sure. income was fairly stable. And so it was plain, uh, primarily commodities that was moving around, okay? Mm. And because it's long vol by nature, so it was picking up, it was attracting more weight. Mm. You see, mm. so in other words, the you know there were you know a lot of errors that were coming on onto the commodities stuff. So what we've said is that look, this is not an adjustment that we've made, which simply addresses just this environment. It is uh, an adjustment that we've made for good mm. because we've identified that this is something that we had not looked into because we we don't like to parameterize, as I mm. mentioned earlier. So, so therefore, we kept the approach exactly identical across all assets, but only to find that there is some kind of, you know, it's, it's a bit like looking at fixed income. You look at uh, long end of the curve, right? Mm. I mean, there's duration risk, right? Sure, you know, sure. So you can't trade uh, long end of the curve in the same way as you could a 90-day, you know, uh, Euro-dollar contract. Sure. Sure. Um, so, you know, you have to make some vol adjustment there, you know, or some kind of adjustment risk cap or whatever, uh, which we've done as well. I mean, this, this we didn't do now. We've done it before in the fixing. So we're fine there. But the commodity one we had not kind of uh, looked at. But, you know, our, our research... Um, is vastly different the way we conduct it. And, and we, you know, we always get hounded with this question of like, you know, so what are you doing in research? What sure. are you doing in research? You know, the thing is that we're not a house or shop that is kind of constantly tweaking models and uh, looking to calibrate all the parameters and, you know, recalibrate every time things change. And people will say, well, you know, markets have changed, so, you know, you change the model. 
Well, markets will always change, right? Mm. And if you start changing your models, you know, you're always doing it to the benefit of hindsight and, mm. and you'll be behind the curve, right? And what you're doing is you're introducing potential for more errors. I'm not saying you are, but, you, but certainly the potential sure, sure. for more errors. And this is something we try and avoid. So one of the ways we try and avoid that is simply by going higher up and looking at the macro picture and saying, mm. okay, what is fundamentally is the model doing the right thing, you know? And if it is, you know, in terms of just the balance of the portfolio between risk, non-risk, and so on, then we're comfortable. Then we're saying, okay, the rest of it is just a simply a timing issue, okay? Mm. Uh, it may be a lag, and yes, it may cost us, but, you know, an investor should feel more comfortable that, you know, we're going to get them out of it, mm. you know, as, as soon as things turn. So, um, you know, our research always focuses on how can we make that adjustment process a little bit more efficient, perhaps, without introducing something else into mm. it as such. So we um, have, for example, I mean, I mentioned of the one source of alpha, which is the portfolio alignment alpha. And the other is the uh, what we call the market reversal alpha. Mm -hmm. Now, what that is, is prim primarily, essentially, it's a hedging tool for us. So... The dynamics of the portfolio alignment process already takes care of a lot of the uh, the negativity in market pos in positions that we have. Let's say if we're losing, you know, it'll naturally flow, you know, move the risk out, try and move it somewhere else. But what we've done is, in addition, we've got a tried to introduce a cover, and this cover is totally orthogonal, meaning it's completely opposite the your core position. So. It, what that does is essentially to say, okay, you know, if I'm long something and the market is coming off, yes, let the core uh, portfolio alignment process continue as normal. But at the same time, there will be something that will just come in and move away when it's not needed, but it'll come in when it's needed to essentially hedge, right. you know, to increase right. the hedge, okay? Um, and this is a dynamic sort of nonlinear approach as well that we've already introduced. Uh, and we believe that that has two um, advantages. One is that it quickens the process a little bit in terms of reducing, um, taking risk off and taking it to cash, okay? Mm -hmm. And the, the um, second thing is also when it does push, you know, if you're long and you, it sells and the the at the core you're already selling into the market this gives it another push so that effectively you could seamlessly go into the short side uh, a lot easier and a lot quicker um, than you would under normal circumstances so essentially it enhances selectively the shorts but at the same time it also acts as a hedging uh, mm. hedging tool and there is an alpha there so that's what we call the uh, market reversal alpha um, so our returns are essentially coming from just those two primarily the the portfolio alignment and the, and the market reversal mm. um, that make up the returns sure and in terms of sort of overall risk management is is that really how it's done as you just described as having the other model coming in and, and, and taking risk off the table or limiting risk or, or is there any other ways that you somehow allocate your risk in within the the portfolio yes absolutely so so uh, our um, uh, risk management uh, runs as follows so we have a an overall portfolio target vol which is typically between 15 to 20 percent okay. standard day. Um, and then we uh, run risk caps on, uh, we have risk caps on every market mm -hmm. uh, so that no one market is uh, allowed to um, get overly skewed in the portfolio sure. in terms of the uh, attraction of the risk budget. Um, and uh, this risk budget is therefore allowed to float freely between this, um, like in our global diversified program, we trade... Um, Uh, 115, I think, markets, and okay. so um, it just gets dispersed across the 115 opportunity set, um, and subject to these caps. Then, on top of that, we have uh, a portfolio uh, volatility modulator, which essentially looks uh, in a very agnostic way, just a pure uh, market vol, and it just says um, that if uh, vol is suddenly expanded, let's say it's doubled uh, overnight, our risk budget, regardless of what our uh, convexity kind of tool says it will just halve the position. So it's an absolute, 
you know, uh, inviolable mm. kind of, you know, risk manager, if you like, in terms of position sizing. Um, so we've got that. The third thing is, of course, the market reversal aspect of it. That has, as I mentioned earlier, that, that has the hedging aspect of it. Mm. Uh, so that automatically will uh, come into play. Uh, the fourth thing is endogenous, and that is the portfolio alignment process. In other words, it's if something's not working, there'll be a natural tendency for the portfolio to try and correct by shifting weight off to one of the other markets. Okay? Mm. So that is a very natural uh, kind of uh, process. Um, so these are essentially the main kind of um, uh, risk tools that we use. Um, and obviously, we run a fully diversified portfolio. You know, there's again, number of managers, if you have a lot of filters, for example, then you end up with, you know, you say, okay, you're trading 115 markets, mm. but you may not be in 115 positions. In our case, when we say 115, we are actually in 115 positions mm. of varying sizes, right? We may be tiny, tiny, weeny, <laughs> teeny, weeny positions, but sure. we will still have something there, you know, yeah. uh, because it's just a continuous process of, um, you know, rebalancing the portfolio in a way mm. on a daily basis. I was wondering a little bit, and I'm curious about your uh, thoughts on this, and that is we, we obviously all do research to try and give people expectations of returns and volatility and, and drawdown for that matter. And, to, you know, for many, many years, I think a, a sort of a, a good rule of thumb has really been that people should should expect about one and a half times the annual volatility as a drawdown and, and or, you know, four to six times the monthly standard deviation, whatever, however people would put it. But what I've noticed and, and, and what the whole world noticed is that in the last couple of years, many trend followers, many strategies in, you know, uh, have experienced somewhat larger drawdowns that they have seen before in their 20, 30, even 40 year track records. How do we explain that to a certain degree? How do we get investors comfortable with knowing that it's okay that the profile of drawdowns have changed a bit if i can put it that way um drawdown is is such a a debatable kind of issue <laughs> i personally don't believe in drawdowns at all never did even at uh, idea and the reason is very simple that it's a function of outliers okay mm. you can never predict drawdowns okay mm. It's like, you know, going on a, a holiday in the beach and finding yourself in a perfectly sunny kind of uh, ex expecting perfectly sunny weather at the right time. Mm. And then suddenly encountering adverse weather, rain, etc. for a few days in a row. I mean, you know, these things just happen because you, when you look at just generally returns, right, and mm. compound returns, the way you shuffle them around will not change your compound returns, mm. right? It's just the sequencing of it. Sure. In, in one point in time, if you just focus on that, you might end up with, oh, three negative months. Mm. You just move this around a little bit, positive, negative, positive, negative, and so on and so forth. You may end up with very small drawdown. Sure. So how can you predict that? It's, it's almost impossible. Mm. However, having said that, it, it kind of presupposes that you have a strategy that has an ability to correct itself. In other words, if you're in a negative skew mode, mm. you're losing that you're not just going to, the system is not doing anything about it, okay? Right. You can't, you have to assume that the system is trying to do something to correct it. Mm. Either reduce it, go to cash, whatever your uh, priority is. So that being the case, then drawdown becomes a lot more unpredictable in my mind. Yeah. And it's just one data point, right? And which is why, you know, the old adage of sort of saying like your next drawdown is going to be bigger than your last one type of thing, mm -hmm. you know? Sure. Uh, now, people get obsessed with drawdowns, uh, and understandably so, because they think of the worst, worst possible kind of, you know, consequence if they had invested at the time. Yeah. I think things like just looking, giving this, the strategy a little bit of 
room to breathe. Looking at rolling returns, for example, let's say 12 monthly rolling returns, that gives you a lot more sensitivity, uh, better sensitivity analysis, if you like. Mm. I mean, that tells you, like, if you were the worst market timer, this is the way I look at rolling <laughs> returns, if you're the worst market and you bought at the top, but guess what? You know, you hold on to it, not just for three months to draw, another 12 months or so on a rolling mm. basis. And if the system is able to weather that and come back up, then you, you take a lot more comfort from, from that, you know. Mm. Uh, so, you know, that and, and of course, taking all the data into account would be things like even just taking vols and standard deviation and that kind of stuff is, mm. is a, although again, that too is, uh, it depends on the distribution, right? If you've got a skewed sort of, you know, long vol distribution, um, then you can't, I mean, your vol will always look like it's, it's higher. Mm. Right? In fact, in reality, it's all positive vol, right? You know? So, um, so this business of drawdowns is, is a difficult one, uh, but I know that investors look at it, and we too do. Um, but I always say that, look, you're going to end up with a flawed model, flawed approach, if you're focusing on drawdowns. It's the worst thing to do, because you're focusing on outliers, and you cannot take the... Uh, the doomsday thing or whatever, the worst kind of, you know, possible period and assume that that's going to continue to happen in the future because you're going to, you know, not venture out at all, you know. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, clearly, in, we, we know that investors um, focus a lot on this. And of course, in an ideal world, they would make use of a drawdown and, and, and actually allocate to to a strategy. And, you know, I tend to ask all my my uh, my guests on, on the podcast about how to deal with the emotional side of the uh, of, of of a drawdown and i can almost imagine your answer but maybe then i'll ask it slightly differently and that is how do we teach investors not to get so emotional attached to these drawdowns as because there are just so many examples of investors pulling out at the wrong time and and obviously, having myself experiences with Adia, we know that that's part of their success is that that's not how they would likely react uh, to, to a situation like that. So how do we teach the modern day investor, you know, to make good use of a drawdown rather than, you know, the opposite? Okay, so, I mean, if... if um uh, the investor has the conviction in a strategy, right? Then drawdowns should be looked at opportun as opportunities. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the way I look at it, because you're looking at a curve that is basically, you know, going upwards, all mm -hmm. right? And consequently, any dip in it, you know, should it present itself, you know, and of course they always present themselves, but the magnitude of that is. Uh, is varying depending on how big the drawdown is. But let's assume that there was a drawdown significant. I think that's a great opportunity to buy. Mm. At RDM, during certainly my time, we would look at it not in a necessarily in a bad way, mm. uh, unless we saw that the, our worry would have been, and, and is that if in a drawdown, the manager starts to overwrite and starts doing right. things, tinkering. Right. Then the model is not the same. You're not allowing that model to to try and come back from the drawdown because you change some parameters in the process. You may have capped that opportunity to come back, you know, mm. and that would be a, f a lot more uh, worrying. Now, in, in terms of investors, what we need to do is just basically tell the investors that look, this is a growth. Uh, capital growth related strategy it is not an income generating uh, strategy so it will have some volatility and nobody quibbles when you look at you know uh, equity markets people you know the, the Nikkei dropped 70 80 <laughs> percent and uh, you know S&P dropped like 40 percent um, you know 38 40 percent whatever the figure was and nobody talks about that mm. right it's only when it comes to these active strategies and CTAs etc oh very volatile and oh big drawdowns I mean uh, it's nonsense because the recovery period for you know uh, active strategies as, as CTAs and managed futures is, is far quicker mm. than than you would with uh, with some of these kind of you know, drawdowns in, in the beta world, sure, right? Sure, sure. Um, and, and so that means clearly the active managers. I mean, the way to look at it is like, how much wealth do you compound like over a period? I mean, I, you know, at, at QCM, in spite of our three years, we say, look, over the 18, 19 years, we've compounded over 500% return. Mm -hmm. 
even after allowing for the three lousy years that we've mm. gone through, mm. right? Yeah. Now, that surely tells you that this strategy is capable of generating those returns in spite of, or generating the wealth in spite of, sure. um, is the, the pullbacks and the setbacks that you from time to time will have. Admittedly, over the last three years, that's been the most challenging one, you know? Of course. But, you know, things pass, you know, mm. and then memory is short, you know, mm -hmm. after a while, this will become a little blip in the, yeah. in, in the cycle of things. Yeah. Mm. Now, speaking on, on sort of longevity and track record, and in your case, of course, almost a 20-year track record now, and you've been, again, it's, it's a great advantage to have you on because you have the investor knowledge as well. And I, I just wonder, how should investors today evaluate track records given the fact that the approaches, the models, whatever we call it, have changed over time, uh, you know, and, 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 and rightly so, because we all evolve. But, but how does that, in a sense, how, how, do, how do investors make a sense of an historic track record, keeping in mind that certainly in my, if we take the fullest systematic approach, I think there's a lot of mileage in looking at, say, for example, ask a CTA to show the track record or in fact show the back test of their current iteration of the model. I think that's an important thing to do, knowing full well that there's never been a bad back test, certainly not in public. But, but, uh, but, but I, I just wonder uh, if we were going to sort of help investors better understand track records what should they be looking for uh, or should they you know not pay too much attention to to that and maybe focus elsewhere i think the um the first level of um, i guess comfort you give to the investor is really in terms of uh, opening up a little bit about your strategy mm. uh, giving them some degree of transparency now whether you do it through ndas etc and, sure. and kind of uh, which is almost essential um, but the biggest comfort from from a, uh, from an investor perspective is if he really understands what you're doing mm. okay because that tells them like how the dots connect basically and whether it's making sense to them mm. you know and has this approach or strategy got the ability has it got the resilience to be able to fight uh, difficult conditions and how does it get out of those difficult conditions you know the second thing is that if you start changing models any manager that actively changes models to me is a, is a difficult proposition mm. but I know I'm so wrong because I know that some of the big guys, <laughs> they have the, you know, the 100 PhDs yeah. and kind of like they're constantly looking to change stuff and do things. But, you know, I, again, this is strictly my own opinion. Sure, I'm sure. very uncomfortable with that because philosophically, I, I think in a slightly different way. Because I think that if you're doing this now, then you'll be doing again another two months. So what, is the, what does that strategy mean? What do those models mean? Other than just to buy into or develop a confidence into your ability to be able to make those calls absolutely. on the changes that sure. you're going to be making sure. not just now but in future sure absolutely right? yeah now is that a sustainable business philosophy i'm not so sure. sure because what if the founder goes and then somebody else comes and then you know there's changes going on so then the whole thing has changed right so the model and the whole approach has changed and and you don't have the confidence of saying okay but i knew so and so and i know that his i have enough confidence in him because it's not him it's the business mm. you're placing confidence in mm. right and uh, and and so you know the the changes that take place i think we as managers and, and and also i mean you know i i see that all the time you know with uh, with clients and uh, prospects in terms of investors institutional investors that they do get concerned but on at the same time you do need 
upgrades to mm. your models. Sure. We, we're not talking about changes, we need upgrades. So whether it's an iPhone version 6 coming out mm -hmm. or whether it's a QCM model you know, 5 version coming out, that's fine, so long as 5 is not radically different. You've not done something that's an, is, that is no longer an iPhone, mm. <laughs> you know, it's something sure. else. <laughs> or it's no longer the QCM model, it's something sure. else. Um, so therein lies the dilemma for every manager is that how do you convince investors that, look, you are on the lookout for ideas, you are trying to be innovative, you are trying to be creative, your interest is aligned with theirs, that you know, you'd be looking for um, better ways to do things, but at the same time, you know, not make them nervous that, oh, you've changed your model, you know, three months mm. ago or two months ago. Oh, mm. gosh, now we have to wait to see how it yeah. behaves for the next, you know, next two years or whatever, you know. Um, and that is a problem. Uh, you know, we, we made this enhancements in last September. You know, they are not even major enhancements, but they're quite powerful, we believe, you know, and because we've identified a couple of, you know, good things that we could hit on, you mm. know. And... Um, but at the same time, you know, there, there are people out there in the fence that are saying, okay, you know, we'll, we'll kind of keep, keep tracking you for a bit longer uh, because you've changed the you know, model. I said, well, we haven't changed it. We just upgraded it. Okay? Sure. And it's just a minor <laughs> thing. You know? So um, it, it, it is an issue. But with all systematic strategies, I think you're going to have this. Because when you have a discretionary trader, you can talk till the cows come home about why you're doing something and not do it still. <laughs> you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Uh, whereas here, with the, it, it's important that level of consistency and discipline that you apply in your uh, running of the systematic process. Uh, and that is crucial because otherwise the model has changed means the profile has changed, mm. you know, and uh, if you start tinkering with it too much. Mm. And uh, I, I think this is a bit of a, you know, slow and educational process. And some investors coming around to it, you know, they, they're kind of saying, okay, well, you know, we want a, a nice balance between your quest in terms of research and, you know, with new ideas so that we can see that our monies are being put to good use, you know, for the betterment of our own investment as well as other investors. Mm. But at the same time, don't scare us mm. by changing it too often, you know. Do you think, I mean, again, this is just something I, I, I thought of. It occurs to me now speaking to you about it. Um, looking back from, say, 20 years ago when, when you started and obviously with the position you had in the industry anyways, but... At least I remember back then that when you met with investors, you often, you know, would meet with a decision maker. You would meet with the the head guy or the head guys, uh, you know, and and you would be able to explain your strategy, and they would get a feel for you. And I think to a large extent that they were buying the people uh, behind the strategy. Now I get the sense today that we now, when when meeting takes place, it often takes place with analysts that are somewhat removed from the final decision and they have to then go and present to the investment committee what they found and therefore it may be sometimes easier to latch on to the statistical side to the numbers and say mm -hmm. oh these are great mm -hmm. numbers because you can't really convey the personality and describe you know your impressions of a of a person that you meet so easily maybe hopefully the the podcast by hearing your voice and your passion uh, can do a better job than that but i'm just wondering if the investment process from in you know the way investors make decisions now have changed because of that because most managers cannot get to meet with the decision makers anymore Undoubtedly, uh, this this is the biggest challenge we face because, as a business um, uh, gets uh, older, more mature, and uh, the infrastructure builds, and you have you have your uh, marketing or business development group out there trying to get meetings and stuff, and um, it's it's very difficult mm. because you end up with, as you say, uh, a lot of analysts, and there's nothing wrong with analysts, excepting not. that they just don't. A lot of them don't have the experience and that touch and feel and kind of, you know, just really, uh, and they get 
overly preoccupied with the the statistics of it, which mm. is uh, what you just said is absolutely 100% right. And it is a major problem. Because the Communicating a strategy uh, today in this day and age with um, uh, busy investors who you know, only want to deal in with, uh, I don't know, e emails or, or, you know, sure. hardly even a phone call, etc. Uh, and or just meeting some junior analysts, it, it, it does cause a lot of problems uh, for us too, you know. Um, and uh, we're always trying to see how best to be able to get this message across in a way that is perhaps simple enough, but um, but attractive enough for the analyst to grasp so that he can take it to the next level, or alternatively finding, trying to find ways of getting somehow to the uh, higher echelons, if you sure. like, of the <laughs> of the uh, of the institution. But it is it is a major challenge, uh, undoubtedly it is. Mm. You know, I, I think that the old um, touch and feel and kind of you know uh, hearing the real story being told by to the right person by the right person from mm. the uh, manager's side uh, that is becoming a scarce uh, opportunity these days mm. simply because people are just busy too busy at time time wise and uh, and the analysts have to protect themselves so they will just they want to make sure that the numbers look right etc and in some ways, it's unfortunate because um, you are missing out uh, just by looking at the basics of these things, whether it's asset size or whether it's, uh, um, you know, just the pure numbers and statistics. Uh, you could be missing out on good strategies that are mm. out there, you know, that mm. could add a lot of value, mm. you know. Uh, and just running number crunching and doing looking at st statistical correlations of risk numbers, etc. You know, so much of it, all garbage, is meaningless stuff. Mm. You know? Yeah, you know, oh, absolutely. In my mind, you know? sure. at the end of the day, it's a lot of it is just common sense and saying, okay, does this make sense what they're doing? You yeah. know, yeah. I want to jump to a, a slightly different topic, which is a little bit sort of, you could say, the business side of things, uh, and. Um, I wanted to ask you, now clearly you've been asking questions of managers, you've been receiving questions from in investors and potential <laughs> investors for, for a very long time, so, so I'm sure you have a, a wealth of, of examples, but I wanted to ask you, what do you think investors are not asking you when they come to visit you? What should they be asking, but they're simply not and I guess it goes to the, a little bit to what we talked about before, that yeah. often the questions end up in one direction, but they're missing, as you say, they're missing. Yes. You know, we, we, we agree that they're missing something, but, but then the question is, what should they ask to get that, you know, out of a meeting, out of a visit, um, in, a, in a sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I think from a strategy perspective, I, I would say the alignment with uh, the economic alignment of the strategy or the rationale behind it sometimes is, is gets missed out i mean mm. they just want to jump into straight into the models you right know? right what does a model do this that as opposed to understanding really at the higher level the philosophy and in some ways if i'm there at a meeting it's in some ways it's a great advantage for the investor to pick my mind and brain because sure. at the end of the day it's it's our kind of uh, products that we're trying to offer to mm. the investors mm. so consequently you thought that you'd un want to understand really uh, what's the thinking behind this rather than just what it is you know yeah. I, I think that that is probably one of the biggest philosophical kind of um, aspects that uh, perhaps is is missing from the uh, investor um, so it's the why so it's the why we do what we do exactly not too much yeah. how and what exactly exactly mm. uh, or even to say like why are you in this business mm. in the first place you know you know, to be able to pick up that passion that, look, I mean, I don't need to run this business mm. anymore, but, you know, I'm extremely passionate about it. Mm. And I love what we do. And, mm. uh, you know, that kind of, and even questions like to do with um, this research, you know, of 
uh, why employ and why not employ too many people in the in the research side, and mm. you know, to be, to get a good understanding of why it is that we don't need you know fifty PhDs here in this, mm. uh, um, and um, I mean this is a very scalable infrastructure, mm. but uh, and and with systematic approaches, that's the nice thing that typically tends to be quite scalable. Mm. So it's not additive that, you know, you have 50 people means 50 times the brain power. It doesn't work like that, mm. right? So there is a, an element of creativity, uh, experience, knowledge, you know, that all come together on which there is really no quantitative measure as such, right? Mm. And this is quite important for our investors to grasp that instead of asking questions like, you know, uh, oh, your research team, why is it small or why have you not hired more people or what is your risk bu research budget, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. It's almost like the, given that you have this team, what are you all doing? What's the mm -hmm. direction you're taking and what inspires you in terms of research, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would say more philosophical type of questions as opposed to mundane, routine, because any analyst can do those kind of things, you know, um, uh, the, the, in terms of the models and how they work and so on and so forth. Mm, no? Absolutely. But, um, or, you know, or how, why do you feel that, you know, you can add value to mm. their portfolio, mm. you know? Just asking the same question but in a slightly different way, I would say, you know. Sure. Yes, yeah, sometimes that's all it takes, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's how creative thinking comes about, right? I mean, you know, by, by sort of making you asking the same question, but in a, in a, in a slightly uh, different way. Mm. Right? No, absolutely. If I say five plus five equals 10, everybody knows that, right? But, you know, if I say question mark plus question mark equals 10, it's the same answer, mm. but it's infinite ways sure. of getting to the same answer, right? Sure. And yeah. that's what creates, you know, uh, encourages creativity. Mm. Now, Arif, we've already, uh, time flies when you're having fun. We've already spent a couple of hours <laughs> uh, talking about this, which is great, which I really appreciate. So I want to, you know, uh, jump to the final section just so we have a chance to cover some of that uh, as well. And, and we could always revisit other things at a later date. But I, I want to ask uh, you and, and some of the things about the why you've sort of already sort of talked a little bit about. So I'm not going to uh, ask that from you. Um, but I, I appreciate you mentioning that as a good question because that was one of my sort of uh, <laughs> my next one. But I want to ask you about based on all of your experience, what does it take to become a great fund manager, do you think? What are the personal traits that a manager should ideally have in, in, in his or her arsenal to, to, uh, to become one of the successful ones? Um, okay, I mean, so, so for, for me... Um, you start off by thinking of this as a business. If you're mm. going to become a fund manager, think of it as a business. Even if you're investing for yourself, it doesn't matter. Mm. So that immediately makes you focus on uh, on the activity mm. of investing. Okay, um, And it also, by looking at it from a business perspective, you kind of detach yourselves a little bit from the emotional aspect of it mm. in the sense that if it's a business it's going to have an element of continuity and longevity okay which sort of leads on to thinking long term you know so don't think of the business for now think of it for life you mm. know and therefore you will have to be prepared to go through ups and downs sure. and use these as learning experiences really you know because these are valuable uh, experiences mm. you know I would say, you know, get rid of the cognitive biases, you know, avoid emotional biases. Mm -hmm. Learn the concepts of like, you know, if you've made a mistake, consider that as a sunk cost and kind mm -hmm. of, you know, and accept it. Uh, and learn to accept losses, you know, there will be losses. In, in the final analysis, like losing the battles, but be kind of prepared to win the war, you know, and have the stamina to pick up and move on. I mean, this is quite kind of uh, quite important. Develop your style and philosophy and get comfortable with it and let it evolve naturally, mm. you know. Don't force the changes 
under pressure from either you feel like, okay, investors are putting pressure on you to change things, or you yourself feel like you're falling behind if, you, and if you're not going to change, right? Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely the wrong thing. Let it evolve in a very natural way. Because so, otherwise, you're going to be end up, ending up with uh, doing things that you'll perhaps regret, you know? Mm. And, you know, not to get wrapped up about finding unique kind of... Uh, market uh, characteristics, trying to treat them, take an agnostic approach, try and treat them all as, as similarly as possible. They're not totally all similarly treatable, but as similarly as possible. And this avoids the tendency to start fitting your sure. approach, you know, sure. which is quite important, the robustness element of it. Um, so, and also avoids the style drift uh, element. Um, discipline is is absolutely crucial. Mm. You know, do not override your rules. Sure. I mean, I would say this is very important. Do that in as a part of a uh, a process, as opposed to reactively. Mm. You know, you know, don't overreact to to things. Sure. You know, do not complicate things by adding lots and lots of inputs or models. You know, sure. and don't keep changing models. For you. So basically, you know, try and keep it solid, simple crisp and clear, you know, yeah. where you know what, how the parts are moving together, you sure, know. Sure. And, uh, and I would say probably in the final analysis that have some economic rationale, which is the most important thing, you know, uh, behind the story, behind the strategy, you know, and don't necessarily follow linear kind of thinking, have some lateral thinking going on at the same mm. time, mm. you know. So I would probably say those sure, are the main sure. ones, yeah. I wanted to ask whether you, and, 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 and sort of part of my final section is really trying to get, for people to get to know you even better. And, and uh, you know, so, so I, hope, I hope you have something you can think of, but is there some kind of a personal habit that you do um, that you think has been actually instrumental in your success? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, and that's the art world, I okay. have to say. You know, I'm very much into the art world, whether it's um, uh, visiting galleries, paintings. I love music. I love opera. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I've just come back from Verona. I was mm -hmm. uh, watching uh, Verdi's Aida, you know, which okay. was amazing. Sure. At the same time, you know, a month or two ago, I was in uh, New Orleans for the Jazz Fest. And mm -hmm. I saw at one time, I was very much into rock music, right. <laughs> as yeah. one goes to those periods. Sure, so, you sure. know, Robert Palmer at uh, <laughs> Led Zeppelin was performing. That was fantastic. I went to a bunch of friends. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I feel an architecture. I love architecture. I went mm. and visited the Guggenheim Museum for Frank Gehry. Uh, uh, work, you know, and you go to the Tate Modern here, Herzog's Architectures, Ar Hadid. I mean, there's just so many, you know, uh, photography I mentioned already, I love poetry, I love, you know, all these to me really open up that other side of the brain. And mm. that's, the, that's the side I really enjoy because then I can, you know, it's like creativity with, uh, when you look at an artist, why is he able to create? Because he thinks freely, mm. you know. He has no bounds, you know, he's got a piece of paper or a canvas and then he starts, you know, uh, you know, un, in an unbounded way. Letting it flow, to, so to letting speak. Letting it flow, letting yeah. it flow. Mm. And I think that uh, uh, the art world is crucial because the, the moment you start going, you know, straight into the micro stuff, etc., not being able to see bigger philosophy of how these things come together at the end of the day you know it's all behavior isn't it you know and it's what drives markets it's all you know the greed and avarice and kind of you know happiness and you know it's all emotions right sure and the art world is directly linked to emotions right how you move the brain how you move the mind is, mm. is directly linked to the uh, in my mind mm. with this music or whether it's uh, something aesthetically beautiful you mm. know And um, even trends, you look at it, whether it's, you know, restaurants or whether it's fashion, you know, you see um, a suit is a suit, but at the end of the day, you know, <laughs> it, it, different designers have, you know, you go to Giorgio Armani, he's got sure. the unstructured look, or at least he did, you go to Tom Ford, you go, you got the real sculpted, you know, uh, fitted kind of, um, 
and and these things come and go, they change, mm. but at the time it moves emotions and mm. so you end up going and buying because this is it, you know. Also the the fact that there is a hurting effect is is uh, you know, catching sort of, you know, something catches on, then you want to almost share it with others and be mm. part of it. I think all these kind of are related to that other side of the brain, you know, which is uh, less uh, less of the analytical, but where the mind freely floats and flows, you know. Mm. Um, and uh, and I love that world. Sure, I really love sure, that sure. World. Yeah. I've got just two more questions, I think, that I wanted to ask you. And one is somewhat related to what we just talked about, but slightly different. And that is, if there's a fun fact about yourself that you can share something that maybe even people who know you reasonably well may not know about you well i mean you know through my art world i kind of engage in a lot of fun because i kind of tend to travel even for weekends and stuff and mm. um, oftentimes with friends uh, i enjoy my hobbies are quite and interests are quite varied and whether it's the beach or whether it's you know going skiing or whatever you know um do you I, if i can interrupt you sorry to interrupt yeah, sure. um do you perform any art yourself or are you just someone who enjoys consuming art um Sadly, I don't. Um, yeah, I don't uh, perform as, as such, um, and uh, the it's it's more consuming. I would say, you know, sure. I, I enjoy the pleasures of a skill set that others have brought uh, into um, into focus for me. Sure, you know? sure, and uh, and I greatly appreciate that. Mm. You know. Um, i would love to be able to develop develop some of these skill sets i um, <laughs> tried to in, you know induce that into my into my kids you sure, know by getting them sure. into piano and stuff and I said like this is something dad didn't get a chance <laughs> to do but i think you should yeah um and a couple of them went to grade seven or eight you know uh, piano stuff and uh, one of them has kept the interest still up uh, alive and the other one is kind of like being lazy <laughs> it doesn't do so much of it yeah. um But uh, no, I, I really enjoy doing that. Sure. I mean, I did write a little bit of, you know, of poetry just for my own kind of sure. pleasure, really. Sure. And I guess that's the only part of doing it myself, I would yeah. say. Um, who knows, one of these days, maybe I'll get around to yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> writing a few more just for my own kind of satisfaction. A absolutely, you know? that would be um, great. But it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a great world when, the, when you know how to, how to scan it for sure. the things that really tick with you, sure. you know. Sure. What gels with you. Absolutely. Um, and in some ways, we're very privileged to be in a world of um, hedge funds, which is highly stimulating for me. Sure. I love that part. And at the same time, be able to enjoy the rest. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Best of both worlds. Now, uh, my last question. Um, I asked you earlier about investors not necessarily asking the right questions or failing to yes. get to the important point. So I need to be critical of myself, of course. And so I need to ask you, what didn't I ask you today that I should have had? What, what, have, I, uh, what have I missed in our conversation? And I want to make sure that, that I've done justice to you and, and to your firm. Um, I guess uh, the, the one question that probably begs to be asked in, in some minds, although uh, not a pleasant one, is this, you know, the difficulties in the business. Mm. Uh, that we've been through over the last, um, sure. or, or more over the last recent period, I would say. Sure. We've had some redemptions, et cetera, so assets have kind of, you know, come down quite significantly uh, from where we were. But then that, look, I mean, that is real, you know, yeah. this, this is how things are. Yeah. Uh, but as I mentioned, long-termism is something very crucial to me. I'm passionate about it. Mm. So I will, you know, I'm, we're looking to kind of, you know, and we know that we will build back the business mm. uh, because we've got great product, we've got great infrastructure. And we have some good people, you know, mm. even though we've downsized a little bit, but still, you know, uh, we've got 15 or so people in the, in the team and, mm. and that's a good number. Sure. And um, yeah, and I, and I enjoy uh, working with uh, with the people. So yeah, I mean, the, the, the performance side will, uh, will, will, will come out of it. I'm sure the whole industry will come out of it and, and uh, things seem to be settling down. So sure. Uh, 
we'll see. But other than that, I mean, I think you've covered pretty much uh, quite a lot, really. Sure. You know, uh, sure. maybe at some future point, uh, if there's any specific topic that sure. you want to discuss, we can re, you know Definitely. go back to Catch that. Catch up again. Yeah, no, I appreciate. I mean, I really actually do appreciate you bringing uh, bringing up that final point because I I didn't want to go there necessarily and. Uh, uh, other than in very general terms, and I think it is, as you say, it's a really, it's a real uh, thing, and I think it makes you really real to bring it up uh, at the end and uh, acknowledging it, and uh, and also giving the confidence that uh, this is, uh, as you say, things go in cycle, businesses go in cycle, markets go in cycle, and and if you have a strong belief and if you have a robust approach, um, you know things tend to. Uh, to work out in the end. So I really do appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and uh, you know, the the fact remains that uh, I've got a lot of my personal sort of uh, monies committed to sure. this. Um, and I'm really excited about uh, what we're doing, particularly post these uh, enhancements that we made. Sure. And uh, I'm sure that uh, down the road, um, uh, those who are tracking us will see, hopefully through the numbers, sure. but uh, hopefully better still, through face-to-face uh, -face meetings exactly. and get a feel for what we, QCM is all about. Um, uh, but the commitment remains very, very solid. You sure, know? sure. Um, and those difficulties uh, we put behind and we just move on. You yeah. know? And that's in a sense, I mean, we... We look at this as a, as a, you know, we're hedge fund managers and that's the business we're in. But in fact, we are entrepreneurs and, and, exactly. and, and the life of an entrepreneur is the, the, the ups and the downs. And, and uh, so, so this is, uh, as you say, this, this is just part of, of how it is to, to run a business. And we know that, that uh, you know, if you, can, if you can go from zero to a billion dollars as, as you've done, you can, you, you, mm. can, you, can, you can do it more than once, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I, I do appreciate this. And I wanted to ask you just at the very end, where's the best place for, uh, for the listeners to reach out to you and, and learn more about QCM? Well, we are uh, available, obviously, on the, um, uh, the best thing is to just um, uh, email us sure. uh, at, at our business development. Faria uh, also happens to be my daughter is sure. working with us. Mm -hmm. She's uh, head of the business development side. Sure. Um, so her email address is faria.kareem at quality capital. It says all in the, sure. in the website, actually. So Absolutely. That's, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a lot of the information uh, at a very basic level will be there, but the, there's no substitute for, a, you know, a chat or, 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 or even a face-to-face -face kind of meeting, time permitting from, uh, from some, an investor's side, you know. Exactly. Um, exactly. Uh, because I think, uh, as, as we've seen like today, you know, in this um, session, you know, uh, you, you covered a lot of ground, you asked some very good questions and deep, uh, you know, um, searching questions really. Um, and hopefully we've been able to articulate in such a way that it gives investors some degree of confidence that uh, what QCM is all about. Exactly. And also I can mention to, to our listeners that, uh, of course, all of the details, and including the contact details, will, of course, be in the show notes of this episode on the toptradersonplug.com website. Right. So let me uh, finish off, Arif, by just saying thank you ever so much i really uh, enjoyed it i learned a lot i uh, thought it was fascinating to learn more about uh, you both as a as a manager and as an investor and and of course the 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 link to adia i think we can all learn from as i mentioned in the beginning so i really appreciate you being very open about it and uh, sharing this with us and i hope we can connect at a later date and 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 see how all of the great work that you do how that's uh, progressing Wonderful. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Niels. Uh, that was a great pleasure to spend the last couple of hours on, the, uh, on this call. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you so much, Arif. Great. Speak to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.